though they love Jesus, they're still afraid of Jesus' dad. <laughs> and and they see, they constantly see the father as aloof and distant and dangerous. And that Jesus is the one that protects us from God. So that Jesus is saving us from God. Jesus does not save us from God. Jesus reveals God as Savior. Well, that was Brian Zond. He is the senior pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, a church that he founded more than 35 years ago. And that quote is him talking about his brand new book, which is called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, The Scandalous Truth of the Very Good News. When I read this book, I told Mary, my wife, that every single person who's ever read the Bible needs to read this book. It's beautiful, it's compelling, it's bold, it's transcendent, and it's really, really good news for anyone who struggles with the violent picture of God portrayed in the Bible and how to make sense of that. So enjoy the podcast and then go out and get Brian's book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Enjoy. Well, hey, Brian, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Good to have you on the show. Uh, my first question for you is this. One of the greatest reviews that I saw for Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God was actually by Fyodor Dostoevsky. It was... <laughs> Yeah, that was that was awesome. I could never have hoped for something that cool. <laughs> yeah, you guys, I'm gonna post uh, the link to this YouTube video where <laughs> this really. I, I, don't this. I really don't know this guy. I mean, I've interacted with him a bit on Twitter or something, or but he just on his own made this and sent it to me, and I thought it was just awesome. It was incredible, and it was really. Really funny and poignant. But besides the fact that it was funny and clever, it was really a very good synopsis of what I'm doing in the book. I True. mean, he knew what he was doing. Yeah, I was impressed. Yeah, yeah. I definitely agree with that. Uh, well, Brian, you've written some powerful books. Uh, Farewell to Mars, I loved Water to Wine, which is part of your story. But this, when I read this one, it feels kind of like, and I don't want to put it in too broad of a category, but kind of like a magnum opus. Uh, for you and your work. Why did you feel the need to write this book now? Well, it is a continuation of previous writing. Um, I'm talking about mostly, you know, having written Unconditional, a book on forgiveness, Beauty Will Save the World, a book on understanding Christianity through an aesthetic theological lens, and A Farewell to Mars, which is my critique of Christian complicity in war. Uh, I'm really more or less responding to the questions that come up as a result of that previous writing. Questions like, well, okay, but what about the wrath of God? And what about Old Testament violence? And what about the violence of the cross? What about hell? What about the book of Revelation? So that's really, so it's, it's a continuation of those. I can I mean, see I, that. What I'm dealing with, is God, in fact, angry, violent, and retributive because if you want to believe that or if you are part of a theological system that says this is an aspect of God you can find those verses in the Bible to support that position but is it true is that a misreading of scripture is that is that not handling the scripture responsibly so really the overarching question that the book deals with is God, in fact, truly angry, violent, retributive? So that's that's what I'm doing with that book. So on that, one of the quotes in your book that I loved and felt bold and important and true is when you say the Old Testament is not on par with Jesus. The Bible is not a flat text where every passage carries the same weight. Because we read, I mean, certainly we read in the Old Testament um, many, many beautiful pictures of God, but but also pictures of God where where God uh, tells the Israelites to murder women and children, and you can't get around that. It it does say that. So, um, so talk about uh, the fact that the Bible is not a, or you shouldn't read the Bible as a flat text. 
Well, I mean, eventually Jesus is going to challenge certain aspects of the Old Testament. Um, clearly, when he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you something different. I say, love your enemy. I say, don't resist the one who's evil. I say, turn the other cheek. I mean, Jesus is clearly um, putting him in a, putting himself in a place where he is questioning whether this is an accurate revelation of the will of God. This is why Rabbi Jacob Neusner, he wrote a book. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it's something like uh, a rabbi talks with Jesus or something like that. And Rabbi Neusner says, I admire Jesus, but in the end I have to reject what he says in the Sermon on the Mount because only God has the authority to ask of me what Jesus demands. To which a believer will say, precisely, that's exactly right. Uh, So Jesus always works with the Scripture. He's respectful of the Scripture, but Jesus then places himself in a position that transcends the authority of Scripture. Uh, At one point he says to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but they are that which bear witness of me. So what the Bible does best is point us to Jesus. If we try to use, though, the Bible as a way to hide from Jesus or worse yet to counterman Jesus, for example, uh, it's pretty clear in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is setting forth a Christian ethic of nonviolence. Well, how many times have I encountered people that say, well, yeah, but in the Old Testament, God told them thus and so, go kill these Amalekites, kill the Philistines, kill the Canaanites, men, women, and children. So, you know, they use that to escape what Jesus calls them. That's the problem of making the Bible a flat text where every verse has equal authority. And the the other problem with that is the assumption that the the Old Testament speaks in a univocal manner. It doesn't. Right, right. Um, If you ask the Old Testament— does God require ritual blood sacrifice? Well, it depends on who you ask. If you ask the priests, if you ask the Torah, it's very clear, yes. But later on, the psalmist and the prophets begin to challenge that. And they, I mean, there's a verse in Leviticus, I can't call it to mind exactly where it is at this moment, but it says that uh, day by day, or how's it go? A burnt offering and sin offering are required every day. But in Psalm 40, uh, you read this. In sacrifice and offering, you take no pleasure. You've given me ears to hear you. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Well, which is it? Yeah. Because I can can show you verses in the Old Testament where it says, you know, burnt offering, sin offering is required and not required. So there is this debate within the text. I think what the what the Old Testament basically is, is it is the inspired story, the, in, the inspired telling of Israel's story of coming to know the living God. But you see their progress in Revelation. It's documented right there within the text. Um, and 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 what I'm what I'm talking about should not be viewed as a low view of Scripture, but as a high view of Christ. This is the way the, a Christian is going to read the Old Testament. Because, you know, what is the Old Testament? The Old Testament is the Jewish Bible. Well, why do we have the Jewish Bible appended as a giant prequel to uh, our Christian canonical text? Well, the answer is because it tells the story of Jesus. I mean, the, the New Testament, Matthew 1, one begins by telling us that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. Well, you know, somebody might go, well, who's Abraham? Who's David? Well, here's the story. Here's how we get to Jesus. So the Old Testament tells us how, who Jesus is in his context. But what that means is, if Jesus is the reason that I'm interested in the Jewish Bible, I don't go into the Jewish Bible without Jesus. I go with Jesus as my sponsor, my chaperone, my guide, my interpreter. Uh, so... I, I'm not free to read the Old Testament as a Christian apart from Jesus. And 
Christians make this claim, Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is Lord over everything, including the Bible. Yes, yes. And you say, so let me ask you this question, because I love where you go with this. I love the rift that you go on this. What is the Word of God? Well, first of all, for a Christian, the Word of God is Jesus. The Bible, I don't mind calling it the Word of God. That's appropriate. We should do that. But it's the, the Bible is the Word of God in a penultimate sense. It is the most faithful witness we have to the true Word of God that is Jesus the Christ. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling all kind of Bible-y today. <laughs> I'm, I'm flipping pages in my Bible. Here I can we hear go. it. I can hear it. Yeah. Uh, I'm, going, I'm getting to Hebrews here. Um, the, the book of Hebrews starts off like this. Um, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, that's that's the Old Testament. That's the writer of Hebrews' way of describing the Old Testament. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, all right, so the writer of Hebrews, writing 2,000 years ago, speaks about being in the last days. You know, so that should cause us to think what we mean by last days. What the writer of Hebrews means is there's no superior revelation of God forthcoming. We, we reach the pinnacle of divine revelation of who God is with Christ. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of, his glory, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So God could not fully reveal himself through the prophets in the form of a book. There could be a trajectory. There is uh, a movement toward truth, but the exact imprint of his nature is not found in a book. It's found in a human life. So that John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the logos, the, the word, yeah. Yeah. The, the idea, the God's own understanding of God's self. And this word was with God. The word was God. Uh, then it goes down to verse 14 and says, and this word, this logos, the divine logic of God became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, his beauty as of the only begotten of the father. Then at the end of that poetic prologue in verse I think it's 18, John says, no one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is near the Father's heart, he has made him known. Now, we could, we could argue with John if we wanted. We could say, wait a minute, John. Uh, what about Abraham? He saw God right. and, and had a meal with him under the oaks of Mamre. Uh, what about Jacob? He saw God at the top of that ladder, angels you know, going yep. up and down. What about Moses? He saw God and his face was all shiny. And, and then Moses took the 70 elders of Israel up on Mount Sinai, and it says, and they saw God. What about Ezekiel? He had visions of God by the river Kibar. What about Isaiah? He saw Isaiah in the temple in the year King Uzziah died. Now, and, and if we did that, I think John would say, look, you don't have to teach me the Bible. <laughs> I know what it says. But compared to the revelation of God we have in Jesus, no one has ever seen God. Or another way of saying it is uh, no one in the Old Testament really saw God. Now, I mean, that, that may... That may freak you out that I say that, or our listeners anyway, but take it up with John. John's yeah, the, yeah. the apostle John says no one has ever seen God and, and until we see God revealed in Jesus. So this is a very daring statement for an apostle to make. He knows the, he knows the Hebrew Bible, but he's saying all of that is um, subordinate. All Old Testament revelation of God is subordinate to the revelation we find in Jesus Christ. Yeah. So what I'm saying is actually a very Christian thing to say. So yes, the Bible is the word of God in a secondary sense. The Bible doesn't point to itself. It points us to Jesus. The, yeah. the Bible, well, in that poetic prologue that we're talking about in John chapter 1, we're introduced to John the Baptist. And we're told there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not the light. But he came to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. So we're not called to believe in John the Baptist. We're called to believe in Jesus. John the Baptist has a role of pointing us to Jesus. Well, the role of John the Baptist 
to the relationship of John the Baptist to Jesus is very similar that, to the relationship between the Bible and Jesus. So we could almost say it like this. There came a book sent from God whose name was Bible. And it was not the light, but it came to bear witness to the light. Yeah. So the Bible, what the Bible does, if you want to use these kind of words, what the Bible does infallibly and inerrantly is to point us to Jesus. Beautiful. And that it does very well. And that's where we, that's our object of faith as Christians, Jesus. That's beautiful. And I can hear, I can hear almost people squirming their seats, getting yes, nervous. And, you know, well, the, you know, does God change? Because we're talking about a God in the Old Testament and the God right. in, in, in the New Testament. So one of the quotes that I really, really love um, from the chapter, closing the book on vengeance from your book, is when you say, I cannot accept the heterodox idea that God changes. What I can accept is that our own understanding of God is in the process of growth, change, and mutation. And do we see that even in the writing of scriptures? Yeah. Uh, look, I, I know our, some of our listeners are squirming because I can hear them too. So <laughs> I, I'm going I'm to make them squirm a little more. Yes. Because I, I want them to understand the situation. So, for example— Again, I, I do these podcasts regularly, and I don't always use as much Bible. I don't know what it is. I'm just in a Bible. Bible, you're Bible. I love it. I'm Bible today. First um, Samuel chapter 15. Uh, there's a command. Well, I'll just read it. Verse three. Now, this is in the name of Yahweh. Now go and strike Amalek, and devote to, to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman child and infant. All right, so here we have a command. And by the way, the reason is given. So maybe, well, maybe there was, the, you know what the reason is? The reason given in the text is because of how the Amalekites had opposed Israel as they entered into the land centuries earlier. Yeah. So, I mean, it's basically a, a few, you know, because of what the Amalekites did centuries ago, now go <laughs> kill everybody, you know, okay, Kill the men. Well, that's what happens in war. Uh, now, Jesus is going to challenge that, but still, you know, that's a conventional understanding of war. Uh, but kill the women, non-combatants. Kill children. Kill babies. Whoa. That's the text. Yeah. So I asked people, if, I mean, would you kill babies in the name of God? Now, there's only one correct answer to this question. Right. It's no, hell no. <laughs> right, that's, right. A, that's the correct answer. Yeah. Uh, it, it, if you hesitate, uh, we have landed upon a problem here. No, you have to say, no, I would not kill babies in the name of God. But that creates yet another problem. Because, um, well, parts of the Old Testament depict God as commanding what today we would call genocide and war crimes. I mean, a general goes out and does that today. Uh, if he's caught, he's going to end up at the Hague International Court of Justice, charged with genocide and war crimes. So you say, well, no, I wouldn't do that. I, I would never kill babies in the name of God. But here's the problem. Um, are you claiming – I mean, what are you claiming? This is the problem because the Old Testament portrays God, alleges that God commands this. So and here's your choices. You have three choices. Number one. Uh, you can question the morality of God. Perhaps when God says it, it's not immoral. There are people that take that route. They say, well, no, you know, when God commands us to kill babies, it's not immoral. Look, I mean, maybe that maybe that's the poison you're going to drink there. Yeah, that's a kind of gymnastics, though, that feels untenable to me. Right? I think, and it's dangerous. Yeah. Because you leave the door open for future atrocities. Yeah. I mean, this is how, and I documented in the book, this is how primarily um, English colonists justified their genocidal treatment of the indigenous peoples of North America. Yeah. They said, well, you know, sometimes God commands that these things be done. And um, so you're, you're leaving the door open. Or, and, and look, can I just say this? I mean, come on, you know, yeah. we all know, everybody knows that killing children is immoral. Yes. Don't play that game of, well, when God tells us. I mean, okay, second option. Here's your second option. The second option is 
Well, God is in the process of change. This is something God used to do. He used to do this, but he doesn't do it. So you, you can, number one, question the morality of God, or you can question the immutability of God. That's a fancy word that means unchangeableness. So uh, you can say, well, God did that in the past, uh, but now he's you know, overcome his obsession with violence, and he's not doing that anymore. Well, I mean, there are people that basically that's their claim. Some of them would be a little more or maybe even a lot more nuanced in it. They would say a God is accommodating himself uh, and participating with culture as they understand God. But yes, God does command that within their own context. Well, but then you have a God that's changing. And I'm enough of a conservative, enough of a orthodox, small O Christian saying, no, the idea of abandoning the immutability of God is a non-starter with me because then where do I place my faith? Right. I mean, I'm a, I'm a classic theist in the sense that the one unchanging entity in the universe is God. Everything else is subject to change, but not God. Um, so, but, but you may, but some of our listeners may say, no, that's what I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe in the immutability. Of, I'm going to not believe in the immutability of God. I'm going to question that. The third option is you question how we read scripture. So you begin to say, I I don't think every single verse in the Old Testament is a perfect revelation of God. Rather, I think what the Old Testament does very well is document the the journey that Israel is on as God reveals himself to them. So the Bible is not so much the piling of one timeless truth upon another as it is how would I say it, a record, a diary even, of a continuing journey into the revelation of God. There is a fourth option. The fourth option, and this is what a lot of people take, is just ignore the problem. Well, and and actually, if that works for somebody, I don't know if I want to take it away from them, but as a pastor, that's not an option for me because I get young people especially coming to me saying, hey, wait a minute, what about this God in the Old Testament that commands us to kill babies? I can't very well say that. Well, just ignore that part. (laughs) Right, right. So really, if people are squirming because you don't like the idea of questioning how we read Bible, then what are you going to question? Are you going to question the immutability of God? Are you going to question the morality of God? Those are your options. Yeah, and what I like about that, Brian, is that you're very out loud about the problem. Like we have, there, there is a problem here as we read about God commanding the slaughter of of mothers and children. I mean, we can't take that away. Like we, you can't pretend. Well, I mean, like you just said, I mean, you you can ignore that, I guess. But if you're going to be you, serious at all, you could actually ignore it innocently if you're not aware of it. Right. But we've just ruined that for everybody. Right. Now everybody's <laughs> gone. But I, I would rather, I would rather a believer alert Christians to the problem rather than an atheist. Yeah. Because my objective is to help people retain their faith, their Christian faith. Yeah. Uh, The atheist will use this as ammunition to destroy their faith. And make no mistake about it. People have lost their faith because of these problems if and they just couldn't find a way to retain their faith. And so that's who I'm trying to help. Right. Okay, so let's. Oh, that's beautiful, Brian. I love. I love the way you think. I love the progression of thought. I love that it that it allows for doubt and wrestling in faith. And so, so, but the next question that people might ask, maybe even atheists, maybe Christians would say, well, you talk about nonviolence. You talk about the progressive revelation, maybe of the scriptures. We need to understand it as um, we're more and more understanding who God is. But then we get to the cross, and on the cross, we've been told that that God poured out God's wrath on Jesus. And essentially, we have the angry, drunk dad who uh, is about to beat up mom, but the son steps in the way, <laughs> receives the violence, and um, so isn't God wonderful? Isn't God amazing and majestic? So at the cross, what happens? How would you talk talk us through that uh, potentially destructive understanding of the atonement. The cross is the center of Christian faith. There's absolutely no doubt about that. As Christians, we believe in Jesus. 
That's what we believe. And at the center of our, at the, at the defining moment of Jesus' life is the cross. I mean, there is a reason why the cross is the symbol of Christian faith. Now, here's what we need to ask ourselves. What does this mean? On a very objective level, what we see at the cross on Good Friday is the torturous execution of a Galilean Jew at the hands of religious powers and political powers. What we need to ask ourselves is where do we find God acting on Good Friday? Is God seen in Caiaphas demanding a scapegoat that we have to call this one a blasphemer and then kill him? Or do we find God in Pilate defending the empire by crucifying this innocent man? The answer is no. Where do we find God? We find God in Christ. So that the cross is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to gain the capital to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. At the cross, Jesus isn't saving us from God. Jesus is revealing God as Savior. At the cross, there isn't a rupture within the Trinity there is the full revelation of who God is. Perhaps my favorite theological sentence is an adaptation of thoughts from Hans Urs von Balthasar, the great 20th century Swiss theologian, who said, being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. So that when Jesus is on the cross and prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is not asking the Father to act contrary to his nature. I mean, what, what is the response of the Father when Jesus says, Father, forgive them? The response of the Father is, of course, son, that's what we do. God is forgiving, redeeming love. I'll often hear people say this, yes, but God had to satisfy justice. Hmm, that's interesting. It makes me want to ask, who's in charge here? Yeah. Uh, is, is God a second-tier deity that is beholden to this goddess known as justice? Yeah. Is, is the God that Jesus called Abba, Yahweh, uh, is he saying, look, I'd love to forgive you all, but I've got to satisfy justice. And she's cruel and demanding, and she's going to want blood. And not only does she want blood, she wants it via torture. So, you know, there's going to have to be some nails. There's going to be a cross. I think probably we're going to have to have some a crown of thorns. I think there's going to have to be a scourging because this is the only way I can satisfy justice. This is humanity projecting upon God our own lust for vengeance. Yes. Divine justice is simply this, setting the world right. That's, that's divine justice. God's justice is to set the world right, to make things right. There is no retribution. There's no vengeance. There's no ontologically necessary violence within God's justice. That is a projection that we place upon God. God does not go about the world setting the world right through a through the ridiculous notion that there has to be a um, symbolic, but it's not symbolic because it actually happens, a violent punishment of a surrogate. So if this is how we understand God dealing with sin, then we need to insert into Jesus' parable of the prodigal son that when the father saw the son, he doesn't just run to the son and embrace him. He runs first to the servants' quarters and finds a whipping boy. Yeah, beats be the hell out of him. Beats him mercilessly. Yeah. And then, having satisfied his wrath and his concept of retributive justice, then welcomes the boy home. Yeah. This, in fact, is what the elder brother wants. He wants to, he's offended that there isn't some sort of retributive justice. Yeah. And in his, 
in, in his assistance, in his insistence that there be a form of retributive justice, the elder brother exiles himself from the joyous party that's going on. We could even maybe say it like this. While within the father's house, there's music and dancing and feasting and joy and celebration, the elder brother, in his obsession with retributive justice, has exiled himself to the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, uh, and by the way, uh, my interpretation of how we understand what's happening at the cross on Good Friday is not uniquely mine by any stretch of the imagination. I'm, I'm solidly within the entire eastern half of Christianity, that is, orthodox, big O, orthodox Christianity. They have never, for 2,000 years, embraced the idea of... Um, God had to punish someone so that he could then be satisfied that justice had been done before he could forgive us. That is an imposition upon uh, the cross that is not found within Scripture. Uh, It really began to emerge a thousand years ago with Anselm during the medieval period where there was this concept of honor. It was an honor and shame society. And if And if a lord was offended by a peasant, the lord could not gain satisfaction of recovering his honor by punishing the peasant. He had to satisfy his honor by punishing an equal. And so then Anselm reasons – I mean we don't really think that way today, but this is how Anselm was thinking a thousand years ago. And he says, okay, therefore God's honor has been offended by our sin. He has to regain his honor by punishing an equal. Well, there's no equal. Well, here's what he'll do. Uh, The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word, will become flesh, and God will punish Jesus and satisfy his honor. Later on, 500 years later, uh, it's not so much honor that has to be satisfied as it is wrath that has to be satisfied, and that's Calvin. those are all unnecessary impositions upon our understanding of the cross. And I think it's pretty clear, once you have an objective view of, view of it, that we are projecting upon God our own insistence upon violent retribution. It's not something that God requires. And, and, and just, can we just take a step back and go, seriously, you mean to tell me that the omnipotent, omniscient creator of all that is— whom John reveals is love, says, yeah, I got to have blood. (laughs) I mean, I've got to have blood here. I've got to have, and I I want it to be painful, really painful. Yeah. No, the the, the origin of the violence, the, the cross reveals violence, but what it reveals is human violence. Yeah. It's where, it's where the principalities and powers are shamed. The, the the violence of the cross is not attributable to the God that Jesus calls Abba. The violence of the cross is attributable to those that murdered Jesus. That is the principalities and powers. That's why the Apostle Paul says that at the cross, the principalities and powers are shame. Yeah. Crucifixion was was a shameful thing. Okay, so those that are those that are crucified or put to shame was the idea. But Paul says, no, it didn't work in Jesus' case, because what happens at the cross is that the principalities and powers who always claim they're acting according to wisdom and justice are exposed. They are stripped naked. And what we see is they do not act out of wisdom and justice. They act out of their naked bid for power. So the cross is where the principalities and powers are shamed. The love of the cross is purely divine. The violence of the cross is purely human. Gosh, that's beautiful. Uh, so uh, I have two other questions that I want to get to. So maybe this question, because I think it does frame it, uh, the book, and then where we're at today is pretty well. But Jonathan Edwards, 1741, he preaches this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And how old was he when he wrote that sermon, when he preached it? And what was the impact? I think he was born in, I want to say he was born in 1703, but don't hold me to that. Yeah, he was pretty, I mean, 
he was pretty young, is my understanding. He was in his thirties. Okay, yeah. let's, let's say that. So let you know, it's like on one level, I want to say, okay, let's let's dial back our sermons when we were in our early thirties. Oh, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know <laughs> my. Oh. Lord have mercy. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Exactly. But I mean, you got to start somewhere, I suppose. But yeah. <laughs> now, but but what was the impact of that sermon on evangelicalism? You know, it's a bit of a mystery why exactly sinners in the hands of an angry God formed the American religion religious imagination more than any other sermon. I don't know if we know exactly why, but it's a fact that it happened. Yeah. And uh, there is no sermon in American history that has been more influential in forming how we view God. I mean, America has a Puritan DNA. Right. We have a Puritan soul. Atheists are Puritans, <laughs> yeah. which I mean, the God they don't believe in is the Puritan God. Yeah. I mean, if you ask atheists, explain to me, tell me, describe this God you don't believe in. It's interesting. They can do so. Yeah. And typically, the God they're going to describe is the God of Puritan angry sermons. Yeah. So, and then, and then the the sermon sort of just lurks around. It keeps showing up. I don't know if they still do this. I'm 58, but I first encountered the sermon, like many do. In high school, where is where it shows up in all places in a literature class, right? As an example of creative writing, and I'll, I'll grant you, it is creative. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the best way to describe it. it. It just seems to okay. This is what God is like. So then it becomes an evangelism technique where we preach a God of wrath, violence, and retribution, yeah. and then insert Jesus as the one who will save us from that. In other words, it becomes a good cop, bad cop re yeah. routine of evangelism. And we present God as the angry bad cop, and then Jesus comes as the good cop that offers us a way out. Yeah. And, you know, does it work? I mean, what do you mean by work? Do, are some people then moved to believe in Jesus? Yes, I think, I think they do, because Jesus is always beautiful. But then what, you, what you've produced is a convert or a follower of Jesus who is in fact suffering from a form of spiritual post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Because though they love Jesus, they're still afraid of Jesus' dad. <laughs> yes. And and they see they constantly see the father as aloof and distant and dangerous and that Jesus is the one that protects us from God so that Jesus is saving us from God. Jesus does not save us from God. Jesus reveals God as Savior. Jesus is not an equation set into a atonement formula um, that protects us from God. Jesus is the revelation of who God is. Um, and that is a huge shift if people can make it, and that's why I wrote the book, yeah. to help make that shift. Well, I'm not kidding, Brian. This is going to sound weird, but as I was reading it, I told my wife, I think every every single Christian who's ever read any part of the Bible needs to read this book. Might make them angry, might set them free, but it's so it has such a and it's really not a very big book. I mean, it's it's no. uh, okay. So, last couple questions: uh, What is hell, and who is going there? Oh, how much time do we have? Okay. <laughs> Here, let's let's start with the problem. The problem is when we use the word hell, H-E-L-L. -L, that word has picked up accumulated meaning over the centuries. It's been forced to carry all this freight that we then read back into the text. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about we get ideas from Dante. We get ideas from Chick Tracks. We get ideas from popular culture. We get ideas from every stupid hell house that you've ever been yeah. to if you were you know, subjected to those things as a youth. And then we read that back into the text. This is why most modern English translations don't even use the word. Uh, they will use in the Old Testament when it says Sheol, they'll just leave it as Sheol, which is simply the Hebrew concept of the place of the dead. And then in the New Testament where it says Hades, 
uh, they just leave it Hades, which is the Greek equivalent of this kind of dreary, drab place of the dead uh, without any particular idea of judgment and certainly not necessarily involving torture. Um, when Jesus does, though, seem to speak about there being some sort of um, discomfort, pain, you know, the, the, the fire is not quenched, the worm dieth not. Very often, Jesus is talking about the impending, let's use this word, hell, or Gehenna, which is the, the uh, garbage dump outside the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is warning Jerusalem, you are headed for a fiery Gehenna if you continue on the course you're on. For example, uh, in Luke 13, uh, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, did you hear what Pilate did? There were some Galilean pilgrims and they were there to offer the sacrifices and maybe they staged a protest or something against the occupying Romans. And Pilate had them killed, had them executed. Um, what do you think about that, Jesus? Jesus said, well, do you think there were sinners and all the rest of the Galileans? No. I tell you, unless you repent, rethink, reponse, you're going to all perish in the same way. And then Jesus added, and what about that tower of Siloam that fell, collapsed, building collapsed, and 18 people got killed? Uh, do you think they were worse sinners than the rest of the people in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, reponse, rethink, you're all going to perish. Now, for many reasons, so many Christians today hear it like this. Jesus is saying, yeah, some people got killed by Pilate, some people got killed by these collapsing buildings or that collapsing tower, tower of Siloam. But unless you all pray the sinner's prayer and ask, Jesus into your heart, you're all going to go to hell. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you don't embrace the way of peace that I am teaching you, remember Jesus weeps over Jerusalem as he enters, saying you didn't know the things that make for peace, and he says destruction's coming, and he's very clear about what it is. Jesus is saying, if you don't, if you, if you don't rethink everything and embrace the way of peace I'm teaching you, you're all going to end up being killed by Roman swords and collapsing buildings, which is exactly what happened 40 years later when Jerusalem was destroyed and the fires were not quenched and the maggots eating the corpses didn't die. So much of the time when Jesus is talking about hell, he's talking about present, this life, destruction that comes upon us when we reject the Jesus way. When Jesus does talk about afterlife issues, uh, which he does most clearly in, I think, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Well, first of all, the, the, the story of rich man and Lazarus is, was an existing Jewish folktale. Jesus didn't invent it. It already existed. We have seven versions of it in rabbinic writings. Uh, but Jesus adds his own part. He adds the part about the five brothers. And... And so, so about, you know, the rich man had five brothers and he wants Lazarus to be sent back from the dead to, uh, to know, tell them, yeah. to warn them. But remember, the rich man in the parable, the rich man and Lazarus, doesn't end up – well, first of all, they're in, they're in Hades. They're in torment. But they're, but, but they're in the same place. I mean the rich man and Lazarus are both there, but one receives it as comfort. The other receives it as torment. That's interesting. But the, the reason that the rich man is in hell is not because he didn't believe right. For all we know, he had perfect theology. For all we know, he believed all the right things. It has to do with how he treats Lazarus. Yeah. So if, if, you, if you're going to believe um, in a kind of a uh, – eternal torture chamber sort of hell, if you want to literalize that, then the sinner's prayer is not a ticket out of that. It has a lot to do with how you treat other people. I think the best way to understand hell is that God has a single disposition toward sinners, and that is one of unchanging, unconditional love. You could think of it as a fire, a river of fire that flows from the heart of God, and how we receive that, though, depends on our own posture toward love. If we respond to love with love, loving God and loving neighbor, then the river of fire that flows from the heart of God is received as comfort and light. But if we resist the way of love, 
if we go against the grain of the universe that is love, then we suffer the shards of self-inflicted pain. And so that one way of talking about hell is that it is the love of God wrongly received, or as Zosimus says in Dostoevsky's uh, Brothers Karamazov, uh, what is hell? I regard hell as the inability to love. So I think there's a lot of mystery about hell or afterlife issues that we think the Bible speaks very clearly about, but upon further investigation, you find, you know, the Bible is pretty ambiguous about this. It's very interesting that the apostles in the book of Acts never made appeals to afterlife issues in the proclamation of the gospel. Yeah. Uh, we have made it all about heaven and hell. I call it heaven and hell minimalism. We've just turned the gospel into pray this prayer so that you go to heaven and not hell when you die. But the apostles never preached anything remotely like that. They were announcing that the world was now under a new emperor, and his name is Jesus. And if you believe this, and if you are baptized, and if you begin to follow Jesus, now you belong to his kingdom where there is forgiveness of sins, and you are now participating in something that leads toward life. If you reject this, then you are still moving away from God in the direction of death, and you will suffer the charge of self and afflicted suffering. Yeah. So um, anyway, that was a little riff. I think I do a much better job in the book. I don't think I did a very good job. No, I, I think you did a great job. And I really do love uh, <laughs> what you did in the book. There's a story that you tell about your grandfather dying and Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, which is so compelling, you know, because the question is, is Abraham Joshua Heschel in hell right now? What would is, be the that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, what would be the point of that? And that's that's what you say in the book, or Gandhi, or you know, it's like what 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 would be the point of Abraham Joshua Heschel or Gandhi suffering in hell? And it brings up all kinds of questions. But at the end of the day, I love how you said it it, it, it sort of reveals the minimalism of the gospel that if it's simply praying the sinner's prayer and going to heaven when you die, then all those questions reveal uh, the flimsy nature of that gospel. So, right. um, okay. You have time for one more question, Brian? Sure. Um, well, actually two, the first one's easy. <laughs> did you, did you, did you catch the Joshua tree tour? Did I they... did. I, I saw, uh, you two whenever they were in Kansas city, maybe like uh, a week ago, yeah. like last week, two weeks ago. Yeah, Beautiful. absolutely loved it, of course. And just the idea of going entirely through the album, one of my all-time favorite albums, in order, every track. That was awesome. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I saw him in Philadelphia, and I, I same thing. I was 17 when Joshua Tree came out, and I, I feel like that was the perfect age for Joshua Tree, and it just wrecked me. And so the record, or, I mean, the, uh, the concert was so good. Uh, okay, last question. Um, boy, I hope this isn't... <sighs> too big of a one, but do you think Christendom that, you know, arguably was started with Constantine in the 300s is over or nearly over? uh, It's over in Europe. Yeah. Which is the cradle of it. Yeah. Uh, It is doomed. And that's, I, I reckon, I see that basically as good news. Yeah. Because then the church can get about the business of being the church. Uh, It's, still far too present in America in the form of American civil religion, which is a kind of Christendom. And Christendom is a heresy. (laughs) It's uh, what happened with, with Constantine is there was this complicity of the church with the empire. And the idea was, well, uh, we'll give the church a favored status within the empire as long as the empire blesses our wars and that sort of thing. And so the church became a chaplain to the state. What happens then is Jesus is no longer actually Lord. Caesar is Lord. Lord is a, we think of Lord as a religious term, but it's an archaic political term. You know, it's, it's, it's the head of state. Right. And so we're going to make Caesar the head of state and Jesus gets demoted from being actually Lord to being Secretary of Afterlife Affairs. And this is why we become obsessed wow. with heaven and hell, because we got to get some we have to have something for Jesus to do. And Jesus' job is to get us into heaven when we die. 
So Jesus' domain is the afterlife. Caesar continues to reign uh, in this life. All of that kind of thinking is pretty much over in Europe uh, because it, it put it put Europe on a trajectory where um, you know from the fourth century you end up, eventually you end up in the two great wars, the two world wars in Europe, where in the name of well, well, for sake of allegiance to the nation, Christians are killing Christians by the millions. Yeah. And it's so scandalous that it causes the church to be exposed as anemic and weak and viewed as irrelevant. And so what you've had in Western Europe is the abandonment of the church. And you have the church kind of existing as a, as a tiny, tiny seed, a, a, a shell of its former self, but it's probably a necessary correction. Uh, Christianity seems to be more vibrant in North America, but I think that's primarily because it's energized in the form of American civil religion, yeah. which is kind of a, a holdover of Christendom where we – because we, we talk and we – I don't. I don't think you do. Right. But many people talk about you know God raising up America. So you <laughs> see that you see, you see the idea is that God is using America to accomplish his redemptive purposes in the world. That's Christendom. That's a heresy. That's a heresy, That's, yeah. Uh, what God raised up is Jesus from the dead and exalted him to his right hand, and Jesus is Lord. America is simply just the latest in a long line of empires. Yeah. Empire, by the way, here's how I use that word. Empire is Empires are rich, powerful nations that believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history. Um, God likes nations, you know, the, the concept of nations with their ethnicity and their diversity and their culture. This is to be celebrated. Empires, though, yeah. rich, powerful nations that believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history. They always are opposed by God, and this is a consistent theme, literally, without exaggeration, from Genesis to Revelation. Because what empires claim for themselves, their manifest destiny, their divine right, is the very thing that God has promised to his son, Jesus. Yeah. So, which is it? God has raised up America, or God has raised Jesus from the dead? And no, you can't say both. It's right. one or the other. Yeah. Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God by Brian Zond. Um, I say to everyone, uh, go out and buy the book. It is beautiful. It's elegant. And it's not hard to read. I mean, it really isn't. It's, it's, I couldn't put it down. Uh, it, it's, it's uh, transformative. So I encourage all of you. I'll put the link on my show notes to get Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. I'll also put the link to the Fyodor Dostoevsky YouTube. Yeah, that's just fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's really fun. Uh, Brian, thanks so much. This was well, really man, energizing for me, and I know the listeners will love it. So thanks for taking time out of uh, your schedule to spend a little time with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Blessings. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Facebook at Steve Ween's Author, Twitter at Steve Ween's, and Instagram at Steve Ween's. And you can find all my work, all my books, the show notes, all kinds of other fun stuff on my website, steveweens.com. And please consider supporting me on Patreon. Lots of fun benefits for all levels of patrons. Check it out at patreon.com slash thisgoodword. Suburban